I won't accuse you of taking it, Ray, this week here. So. Okay, based on that last song, I think we're all running a little low on batteries, so. <laughs> In uh, 2013, um, we had to leave Ukraine to uh, redo our documents, which happened every so often. And um, being cheaper to go to other countries in the area to find an embassy, we went to uh, Berlin. Uh, we went to Germany. I'm pretty next to, pretty close to, to Ukraine. And um, our documents that we left with weren't done correctly, so we had to send them back uh, to get redone. And so we waited. They came back. They were still not done correctly. So we waited. Uh, in the time that we were there, we found a, a church, actually, and we found a a guy, a missionary there. So uh, we kind of knew common people, which is kind of cool. And so, so he says, you know, here's all these things while you're here. We ended up being there about a month. And, and he says, uh, there's all these cool things uh, to do. And so, so we, we, we found a lot of history. We found a lot of museums, uh, zoos, everything. And um, when it, being in Berlin is kind of like being in Vegas, where you get to see the world's the world's architecture. Now in, in Vegas, it's just miniature reproductions of it uh, in casinos, but, but Berlin's a little bit different because one of the things, the, the, the only possible thing you could say about Adolf Hitler that would be even remotely uh, positive would be that he appreciated art. Unfortunately, he appreciated other people's art and stole it and brought it to Berlin. And, and so, so we got to go to all these museums and uh, this does have a point, I promise you. Um, so we went uh, to a museum, and, and there's, this, there's this museum. We walk in, and, uh, and you see this. It's, it's right there. It's, the, it's the, the marketplace. It's a multi-tiered marketplace of Miletus. Miletus is, is where Paul was on his, on his third missionary tour. He's coming back, and he, he asks the, the, uh, the elders from Ephesus to come down, and he prays with them. And so, so you're standing in front of something that likely Paul, Paul saw. It just kind of makes you feel smaller. Now, this, so they've carved out this doorway, and you walk through the doorway, and you turn around. Just from a biblical perspective, this is, this is, it kind of floors your mind. You walk through this doorway, and you turn around, and you look at the Ishtar Gate, which Daniel would have seen as a, as a young 16, 17-year-old man marching into Babylon under captivity. So it's like Paul and Daniel like in, in, in three seconds. <laughs> you feel so amazingly small. You know, in light of history, what's interesting is that neither one of these things, as, as crazy as it, as it may be, is the, uh, is the crowning thing of this museum. I thought it was a strange museum, but this museum holds a large altar. Um, I, I thought it was a temple, and I was studying it and, and found out that the entire, what you would call a temple, is, was considered an altar for another temple in a city that we are going to be talking about. And the museum is named after, after this altar. It's called the Pergamum. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this altar, and we're talking about this city today. So Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, beginning. going through this series of, of lights, uh, encouragements to, to churches in 
Western Turkey, that God was trying to maintain their light. And so in verse 12, he says to the church in Pergamos, right? These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you, where, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And so you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans also, which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against those with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Whoever over, over, to whoever overcomes, I will give the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on that stone a new name, which no one knows except him who receives it. Well, I want to talk about some of the positives because where possible, John always writes some positives. He, try, he tries to encourage them. He tries to, and it's not just John writing, but this, these, this is Christ speaking to this church, and, and Christ tries to encourage people with what you've got. Let's build upon the things that you've got. These, these are your, your positive points. He's trying to maintain the light. Right? Jesus is... Uh, when, when John the Baptist speaks of Jesus, he says he's not going to quench a smoking flax. He doesn't break off a, broke, a, a, a crushed reed. In other words, Jesus, when Jesus sees something that's, that's uh, not in the best of health, he, he doesn't just break it off and, and, and start over. He, he tries to fix what he, I, I can use this. It's a smoking flax. It's a, you know, it's a candle that you ever had of a kind of a smoky candle or something like that. It's not perfect, but, but God's like, here's some light here. And, and I can use this, but we just want to kind of fine tune this. We kind of want to uh, rehabilitate it to be better. And that's what he's going to do. So he begins with some of their, uh, some of their situation. We want to look at some of their situation. Their strengths were actually somewhat similar to Smyrna. Now, they're surrounded by some sort of theological, or their position, I should say, maybe not necessarily their strengths, but uh, their, their condition is the same as Smyrna in some degree. They, they're surrounded by uh, some theological opposition. One of these groups is the same group that Smyrna, uh, or excuse me, that uh, Ephesus has uh, uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, the Nicolaitans. We'll get to them again. But... Um, there is something in this area that is purely vile and, and completely pagan. And they haven't succumbed to it, at least entirely. And he compliments them um, for that. They also have uh, some notable examples in their church. We, we read last week about Smyrna and, and how they had a guy by the name of Polycarp. Who, who was really influential in, in keeping that church on the in, in, in being a martyr uh, later on, uh, you know, probably based on on the encouragements even of this book. And and this church has a man or had a man named Antipas. At some um, some time, we don't know anything beyond. There's a lot of theories and you know uh, histories later on that are more probably fiction. <laughs> So to try to explain who this guy was, but he was someone of note, uh, a legend. And 
I think a lot of times if you are trying to encourage somebody, you, you encourage them or encourage a group of people, you might, you might encourage them and, and try to say, you know, one of you is, was this great person. And yeah, we have this great, this great person in our past and this, this notable person that everybody loved. And you, you try to use that person to encourage them to, to hold those ideals that that person held to. And Antipas was apparently a legend in this church. And so Christ uses that. Christ will use any good thing to try to motivate us to, to be bright lights in a community around us. And so we want to look at their battles with heresy. And they've got a problem. They've got two. They've got two groups. One of these is the Nicolaitans, and we've already discussed them. We don't know a lot about this group. Uh, this passage actually tells us the most that we will ever know about them. Uh, in, in Ephesus, they're mentioned in passing, but this, this really tells us the most that we know about them. And it is interesting as we look at, as we look at the, the book of Revelation and, and we look at the order, uh, there's a, the order for the churches is not random. Right? The island of Patmos, if you looked at it, the, the closest of these seven churches would have been Ephesus. And, um, and we learned to, the memory tools, ESP, TSPL. Right? We learned to memorize these, and, 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 and so you can just kind of go through. And, and if you do that, this is called a circuit letter. And, and what a circuit letter was is that it went from Patmos, and it went to Ephesus first. And so Ephesus is first in our list. And then from there, it, it goes to Smyrna. And Smyrna is just a little bit north of there. And then we come to Pergamos on the coast going up. Then we move inland. And, and we come to Thyatira and so on and so forth, all the way down to Laodicea. And, and so it was written and, and just kind of traveled in an order. And what they would do is they would, it would come to a church, and this letter would come to a church. Remember, these letters are so valuable, they didn't just throw them off a printing press. Right? You had to, if, you had, if you were one of the few that got to see an actual letter, you were blessed to, to see an actual letter. So, so when it was announced that... that Here's a church with a letter. Churches, people from neighboring areas would come to see the letter. Here's a letter from the apostle Paul or the apostle John. Wow. And at this point in time, John's the last living apostle. So, so to get a letter from him, to get a letter from the last living, this is like, you know, uh, so-and-so is going to retire, the greatest whatever. This is his last game. And you get to be the, the last, this is the last time you're going to get to see uh, Michael Jordan play basketball. The last whatever, the, the last great thing. This is his last concert where we're going to see whatever your great favorite musician is going to retire. This is, he's going to be right in my area. Like, wow. The last letter of John, possibly. I mean, John's an old, old man. So, so they would come around. And so what they would do is the church would copy it would stay there. Didn't, this, this, this letter didn't get passed around in a month. It stayed there while scribes, Jewish scribes, would write and copy line by line this entire letter so that they would have the book of Revelation for themselves. And, and once it was done, then it went to the next church. And so, so this, this might be here and copied in, in other churches, not just one copy, but, but people from the area might be copying this letter to take back to their church. We want a copy of this thing. So, so letters kind of took time to get circulated. Right? We think 
well, why, why does no one know that the book of Revelation was an inspired book of Bible? Because there's a lot of people that say, well, Revelation, there's no mention of it. It, take, it took a long time to get into circulation. They didn't just roll it off the printing press in, in, a, in the first edition of you know, 20,000 copies. <laughs> That's not how it worked. And so it goes around it. It might take a, a couple of years to get to Laodicea. And what's interesting, and again, this is not just minutia, but as we look at this Nicolaitan group, we notice them only in two churches. They're on coast cities. They're on Ephesus, and they're in Pergamos. Now, right between them is Ephesus, and we, we saw Ephesus has a little bit more handle on, on maintaining the truth, uh, or excuse me, Smyrna. Has, has a better handle on, on maintaining the truth. God, God Christ, in, in talking to Smyrna, didn't even have anything bad to say about that church. Nothing bad to say. Like, you're going to have some problems, but that's about it. Short, four-verse thing to Smyrna. Not so much Pergamus. They get a little bit more attention. And so the Nicolaitans appear to be a coastal influence. So maybe something to do with the... Uh, something to do with the port cities didn't make it inland but we won't see any mention of them inland and that's all we know about them some sort of pagan influence but that's not the heresy that that takes up the majority of the time here It was weird. It was strange to, to walk into this room and to see this, or half of <laughs> what looks like a temple, and, and to sit and or stand on the steps and think of the statement, I know you are where Satan's throne is, and to know that you're looking at Satan's throne. To know you're looking at a, an altar, a very large altar, where they would take animals up and there's, there's pillars all around it. And the, the, there's, there's this fresco, there's all these, these statues of gods and gods doing things that are pretty despicable, whatever they have left of them. And knowing that, that these horrible things are happening in this, and they take, they take these animals up in uh and slaughter them up in this, uh, this it was an altar devoted to, I think, Athena, and maybe Zeus, but mostly Athena. And then they would cut it off and bring it back down the steps, and they would eat it raw with the blood in their worship to Athena. And... Christ says, you have people in your church that are involved in this. He says, listen, he says, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. 
But this is not just an outside influence. He said, you've got people in the church that are involved in this, and you've got people not just doing it, but promoting it in the church. How can a church do that? How can you get to that level? Well, let's talk about Balaam. You know the story of Balaam, right? And, and before we get to Balaam, and talk about these are the two horrible practices, and the other is sexual immorality. And so these aren't just two random things. These were both actually practiced as a part of pagan worship. And in fact, not just here, but, but in many places they did these. They, there are, are evidences of, of these things being done at Stonehenge or, or among the Mayans uh, for blessings of crops or for fertility among, uh, you know, trying to, in childbearing or whatever, these practices, both of them were done to try to get God's attention. In some places, human sacrifice to try to get God's blessing. And so there were prostitutes, both genders, any age, in this temple, and you're sitting there looking at it. And a part of you goes, God put this under the ground in ruins for a reason. Why did we have to build it back up and put it in a nice pretty museum? It is a horrible place, and the, the architecture is amazing. And you're looking at Satan's throne, figuratively. God is not happy about this place. God wasn't impressed with the architecture of this place. It was disgusting to him. So let's talk about Balaam. You know the story of Balaam. Isn't that a good story? Don't we go, Balaam, uh, Balaam is called by Balak as the enemy of the king. Uh, and and he's, uh, or, uh, he's called by the king, the enemy of the Israelites. And, and uh, he goes and, and he's, a, he's this prophet and he goes there and, and Balak says, curse my enemies. And, and three times, actually more than that, but, but he, he again and again and again, he won't curse God. Seems good. And he's on his way. And we kind of like, why, why in the world? I, the one idea I don't get is why he seems to be going and, and not helping Balak and the, the story of the donkey. And you think, oh, hey, he, he, he figured it out. And uh, the, the donkey's talking to him. And at some point you go, if you're arguing with a donkey, that's bad. If you're losing, that's worse. And uh, that's the story. And we think that's great. Let's go back there. Um, because it's an important, it's important. So Numbers chapter 22, and, and one of the things your attention should be drawn to here is that Balaam is not a Jew. I always thought of Balaam as this Jewish prophet, right? He's not. He's not even, he's from probably an area not too far from where we're talking about Job in, in our class, probably not too far from there. He's He's um, from uh, the Ammonites or the Moabites, one in that area, in, to the east. So Numbers chapter 22, we see this uh, story start. In verse 1 through 5. And kind of, I've already encapsulated it, but I want to 
get some details out of this. If I can find it here. The children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of Jordan across from Jericho. So, so here's this time. We're coming into the time where they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're not there yet. And, and if we remember the whole story, they've, they've, they've had trouble. And one of the peoples that they've had a lot of troubles with is this Ammonites and the Moabites, especially have been rude to them. God's going to deal with them for that. So Balak, the son of Zippor, saw everything that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was very afraid of the people because they were many. Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, this company will eat everything around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was the king of Moabites at the time, and he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Peor, uh, son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river of the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, look, the people's come from Egypt. They're covering the face of the earth, and they're next to me and so on and so forth. Please come, give me, and the whole thing this goes into this, launches into this thing, please come give me a blessing so that, that God will say that I'm going to beat them. And we said, well, wasn't Balaam a good prophet? Didn't he do what he was supposed to do? Verse 13. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to the prince of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission. Good. Good job. But it's not the whole story. Verse 17 and 18. I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people. This is now Balak talking back. And so Balaam answered and said to the servants, Balak, though Balak were to give me this house full of gold, if you were to give me this house full of gold, I couldn't go beyond the word of the Lord. Hint, hint. And God came to Balaam, verse 20, at night and said to him, if the men come to you, and then go rise with them, but just speak the word that I speak to you. And through this whole thing, if Balaam had been doing what was right, he would have said, no, that's it. Goodbye. Right. But uh, remember the story of Elijah. Right? They come to him, and he's like, you were going to want to leave. No, okay, bears come out. <laughs> it's like, I said, leave me alone. I'm not going where this is not happening. It's not going to be pretty for you. But, but Balaam is constantly figuring out how to try to do the wrong thing. And we're going to look at a little bit of why. It's important to understanding Revelation. We're going to get back to Revelation. This is not a separate sermon on Balaam. But it's, it's important to what we're talking about. As we said, we get into chapter 20, uh, uh, the end of chapter 22 is the story about the donkey. And then he goes, and, and from there, even that's not the end of the story. He, we talk about the three messages where he constantly refuses, and then he goes back to his place. And that seems to be the end of the story. Now, I want to look in Numbers chapter 31. Numbers 31 Trying to hold three places at once here. That makes this a little difficult. The last thing Moses does before he dies. This is, I know we think well, Deuteronomy is next. Deuteronomy is the giving of the law. This is the last, really the last military thing 
that he does uh, is chapter 31 before he dies and, and Joshua's going to take over and enter into, into the promised land. And verse 14 and six, through 16 are interesting. It says, Moses was angry with the officers because of the army, with the captains over thousands of captains, over hundreds who had come from battle. Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Why are the women alive? These women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. You see that? Well, when did that happen? That happened in chapter 25. We didn't even know it. Something happened between when Balaam went home and now Balaam is killed in this, by the way, in this action. He couldn't get what he wanted done the way he wanted. He was kind of hoping he could get there, and God said, you better not prophesy against my people. And so what he did is he had plan B. See, he was always on the side of Balak. That's the problem. Hence getting into a fight with a donkey. And so what he decided to do was infiltrate a different way. And so he's somewhere in here has said to Balak, listen, I can't, I can't help you. But if I were to help you, maybe a different way we could go about this would be to introduce something that is offensive to their God. Their God will turn against them. And this is some of the things that their God doesn't like. And God gets incredibly unhappy. And he says he used these women, these foreign women, to introduce these same practices that we see in Revelation, adultery and idol worship. That's the whole story of Balaam. And is a lot of it we don't even know. What the, we just kind of have to fill in the details, and that's important to Revelation. So important to understanding why he's so upset with this church in Pergamos. We don't have that going on today. Right? When was the last time you pulled a bloody animal down some steps and offered it to some statue, and we all started eating? We, we don't do that. Right? When was the last time in church we had these things going on? This doesn't apply to me. It does. The light that Christ is trying to get them to is the light of loyalty. Some people, be it Balaam or be it this church here, had a, a character of trying to get where they're going to go any means by any means they're going to get where they want to go. They have a degree of religion. God has complimented on some of their religion, but they allow themselves to mix with what is wrong. And it's a, and it's an allegiance thing. And so they listen to people who do not have their best interest at heart. Sometimes you can even make it seem like it's religious. It's doing it for good reasons. Right? It's, it's, it's why we 
come away from the story of Balaam, the first couple of chapters, and think that Balaam's doing the right thing because he's, he's, a, he's able to position it so he looks decent in it all. But he's not. He's duplicitous. He's sneaky. He's conniving. Why did the Athena worshipers do the things they did? For the same reasons as the Moabites and the Ammonites. They thought it would bring them fertility. They thought it would bring all these blessings. That's, that's where this comes from. And it is at the root of stuff that still goes on today, though, though the form looks different. There's an idea in humanity and in among Christians so often, not always, but so often, that we can get things by our logic and by our means and by our methods. And God says, I want allegiance to me and the way I do things. It's, you're not going to get these blessings. You're not going to end a drought by sacrificing to Athena or to Baal or to whatever the God is. And, and we're not going to be productive as a congregation or as a church as a whole by trying to use different methods than the ones that are prescribed. Why do God's people get involved? Why do they get involved here? That's a question. He, do, he doesn't ever explain it. We don't have any explanation as to that here in Revelation. We can only know how we do things and how, how things happen in ours and say probably didn't look too different from, from, from their point of view. But you allow yourselves to get close, first of all. You allow yourselves to buddy up with people that think differently. And they introduce it, and, and yeah, that doesn't look so bad. That I can see some logic in that. And so instead of seeing their success solely dependent on God, they, they start seeing it as a means or coming by a means of other things as well. We can, we can introduce this wonderful thing as well. They didn't leave God. They just thought, we'll add something to God. We're going to church on Sunday, but then, you know, on Monday we're going, or whatever day we're going to uh, the Athena temple, the, the, the throne room of God, or the, uh, the throne room of Satan. Throne room of God, then tomorrow throne room of Satan. Right? And, and, uh, and, and we'll get all our bases covered. It's just a part of the equation. Maybe, maybe there was this thing. Maybe some of them had these noble ideas that, you know, maybe if I go to their church on Saturday, they'll come with me to my church on Sunday. You know what I mean? That's the logic. There's people that use that logic. Maybe if we show some type of human solidarity, we can influence them for good. Can you see the logic? If we get 
show some interest in the things that they do. Then, it, then we have a, a, a grounds for some communication. And I can see that logic. I'm not saying that's the logic they used. I, I'm just saying I can, I can project things I've experienced and, and say, they probably didn't just get up one day and say, hey, let's go do these awful things. I doubt that the Christians did that one day. That they went from being a, a faithful church with whomever established them at one point, and, and, and here's Antipas, who was, was this great guy, and, and they, they were apparently dedicated at one point in time, and the next day they got up and said, well, Antipas is dead. Let's go down and, and do these awful things. I don't think it worked like that. There had to be some period of transition. And it's just little things where you allow your loyalty to God. Little things come in. And you don't identify it right away. And pretty soon, God says, what are you doing? Have you seen what you're doing? Or, or at least some of the people, and there's people in your church that are encouraging this and saying, this is a good thing. The world would like us better if we did this. They, they wouldn't talk so bad about us if we did this. Or if we said this, or if we maybe we just don't have to preach this. Or... The words that I hate the most is the word relevant. I hate that word. I mean, in of itself, it's a wonderful word, but so many things have been introduced in the last several decades of American Christianity because churches want to remain relevant to the world. I don't want to be relevant to the throne of Satan. We, we have no relevancy. Christ says that in 1 Corinthians. He says, what does Christ have to do with Satan? What similarities are there, really? What, what, what is similar between our worship and, and idolatry? Is there any, what, what, what fellowship does communion have with idols and, and, and eating things sacrificed to idols? Is, is there any similarity? There's no, there's no basis. And so when you start down the road, you will end up where you never intended to be. And what's worse than that is you will never see the reality of, of what you're doing. You'll be convinced that what you're doing is fine because you've not noticed the little changes along the way. Along the way, every move has been justified by thinking that you're doing something in favor of God, much like Balaam. Much like we still look at Balaam and we have this idea that he was some kind of a good guy because he refused to do everything opposite. Balaam was a horrible person. God said so, and he killed him for it. I like the conclusion of this. This is where we're going to conclude. To the one who overcomes, I will give him the hidden manna to eat. A hidden manna was the, the jar of manna 
<clears throat> it was kept in the Ark of the Covenant when they entered into they right right around this period of time. They get they're getting ready to to leave it, and the man is going to be cut off. They're going to lose that connection, right? Just just like here we are in the, at the, these churches, they're about to lose their connection to the apostles. So they're going to about to, the last one's an old 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 man. There's something to remember by and here's these scriptures and here's the scriptures. You're going to need to remember the things that are being said, like this jar of manna is what's being left behind. A reminder of, of these blessings that came directly from God. When, when God divinely intervened, here's this jar of manna. And they, they entered it. It never decayed. It was hidden there for whatever period of time. I don't know when they ever lost it. But it was always there. As a reminder. Not to be corrupted. What God gives us doesn't get corrupted. So long as we remain pure and as we're the thing that gets corrupted. But what God gives never gets corrupted. It's a reminder of God's promise. And he says, I'm going to give him a white stone. And it has a name on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. What in the world? There's a thing called a tessera. In, in, uh, there was different kinds of tessera. Um, there were some that there was a white stone and it would have a word engraved on it. And um, if you were a great, if you did something notable in war and you came home, right, we talk about, well, he's never, never going to have to buy lunch in his town again. You know why? That comes from this thing where you were a great soldier. You would come home and you would never have to buy lunch again. You had the stone and you walked in and said, yeah, I, I fought this guy and I won and I'm great. Give me lunch. And you had that. There were some that were, they were just uh, some of the arrogant uh, emperors would just to get popularity. They would, they would do these and just have random ones and they would toss them into a crowd. I don't know if that hurt people or what, but, but if you, if you managed to get one, you could, you know, get whatever. There were different words all over these things, but there's one specific kind of tessera that was interesting. It's a different kind of tessera. And it was one that was a bond between families, right? And uh, if, if, if Cam and I, we had some, something that happened, some event, and we wanted to kind of commemorate that in a special way between our families, we, we would exchange names, right? And, and what that meant is if I needed something in the future, I'd just come to Cam, and it's got his name on it, Right? And he's got one that says, and we would pass this down to our families. Five generations, my son's in a bad spot, or my great-great-grandson is in a bad spot. He might go to Cam's great-great-grandson. I'm in a bad spot. Our families, are, there's this connection. It's a, it's, a, it's a name. It's not a thing. It's not free lunch. But it, it's, a, it's a name. And things are panned out because of the name that we're connected to. And 
understand it. I think that's, I don't know for a fact, I think that's what this is referencing, that, that Christ says, I, I give you something, you're connected to me based on a name. When you, you need to understand that the, where blessings come from. These blessings come from me based on my name. God doesn't ask me to give him one. There's nothing, we talked about that in, in Job this morning, there's really nothing I can do for God. I mean, I, I can give him my allegiance and things like that, but there's, there's no allusion to that here. Me giving God a stone. The blessings come from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. And so as we leave today, I want us to be reminded of what loyalty means. To, to examine in our lives because we're, we've grown accustomed to things. I, I'm accustomed to the things that I do, and the way I do them, and, and the logic processes that I've developed over whatever period of years. And those have changed. And, and I probably, if I, you know, if I compared myself to who I was 20 years ago, things, a lot of things that are different. And I might not even recognize that. But to examine the motives behind which I do and the, the things that I accept and, and why I accept them. And in the final analysis, do these things show loyalty to God? I'm not saying that do I do them to, to try to do nice things for God, but I mean, do they show genuine loyalty to God? Will God say that's loyal because these are the ways that I've prescribed to do things. Or am I showing allegiance to something else? Am I, am I through my decisions, am I, am I bringing something in to try to kind of buddy up with God? To try to be an additional thing, an additional logic, an additional method. Like the church here, a religious church, a church with some good things to say with it, a good, a good past. He's not saying they're horrible. He's saying, I, I have some things that I can work with you on. Remember the good things from where you came and try to go back to that original loyalty.